love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. We're recording this episode on Sunday night, and we're just kind of cleaning up after our big Halloween bash. And by big Halloween bash, I mean, well, we just sat around and ate candy. Yeah, basement snacks. Basement snacks. Although we were on Jim Harold's uh, Halloween special. That was a lot of fun. That was so much fun. And it gave us an opportunity to dress up in costumes. And um, can I just take a moment and say how flippin' adorable you looked in your vampire costume? All right. I don't appreciate what you're doing right now. No, it's true. Uh-huh. Uh, you, you looked adorable, especially... Uh, as you were getting ready and I walked in on you and all you were wearing was uh, tights and a cape. That was that was really nice. That's just one of my go-to looks, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, I, 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 let me just take a moment to encourage that look. That it's, never happened. And don't be gross. Black tights. Don't be gross. And a cape. That's your you're bordering on gross. No one wants to hear Aunt and Uncle Creepy talking about <laughs> tights and capes. Okay. We uh, we did have a good time on Jim Harold's. We certainly did. Halloween special. That was a lot of fun. And uh, we are very much looking forward to more conversing with those the like-minded types, if you see where I'm going with this segue. I do see where you're going with this segue. We uh, just released our home phone number to the Inner Circle of Freaks on Patreon. Now, the Inner Circle of Freaks is the third tier. Anybody who is a third tier supporter on Patreon gets our home phone number. And on the 15th of this month, we're going to have our very first Sunday phone calls with the Freak family, where we're just going to talk to people. We actually purchased like real telephones and they look so weird in the house. It literally (laughs) is our, it's our home phone number. The whole time we've lived here, we've never had real phones. No, just cell phones. So it's so strange. Every once in a while, one will catch my eye and I'm like, (laughs) yeah, it's like the nineties again. It is like the (laughs) nineties. We have like the wireless handheld with big giant rubber antenna. There's no rubber antenna. You know, it's funny when I hooked it up a couple of nights ago, I plugged the phone in, 
and it wasn't plugged in for more than 30 seconds. Immediately after that, a call from somebody uh, very concerned that my car warranty had run out. Oh, no. Did you get that taken care of? I did. Oh, yeah. good. Oh, We're good. all set. We're good. <laughs> Anyway, we would love to uh, to have you join the Order of Freaks, uh, become a supporter. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. And again, one of the many benefits one gets in uh, the third tier is our home phone number. I think that you are supposed to go first, but maybe actually I should go first. Yeah, we got all flipped around because of the Halloween special yeah. last week. So it is your turn. Okay. Mark Twain declared that the Indian city of Varanasi was older than history, older than tradition, older even than legend. Mark Twain said this. Mark Twain said that. Okay. You know, I'm a Twain fan. That's right. I'm a Twain head. This isn't about Mark Twain at all because oh. he was wrong. Oh, what? Really? Yeah. Can I just throw out my favorite Twain? Please do. While, while we're on the subject of Twain. Absolutely. Before you change, change the subject. Mark Twain once said, there are two types of people in this world. One whose heads were made to put ideas in, the others whose heads were made to throw potatoes at. And I couldn't agree more. <laughs> yes, we've been uh, binging on Mark Twain uh, the last couple of nights as we are watching Ken Burns' Mark yeah, Twain right. uh, documentary. Uh, the, by the way, narrator of that, Keith David. Oh, yeah, great voice. That voice. Mm -hmm. I love... But we are not here to talk about Mark Twain. Wasn't he in They Live as well? He was in They Live, yes. <laughs> yeah, that that was the... A uh, weird little yeah. box of oddities effect yeah. there. Go ahead, anyway. <laughs> Those of you who understand, well, you're welcome. <laughs> so evidence actually leads us to believe that Varanasi was founded around 1000 BCE. Okay, how do we know how many people lived in a place? Well, generally, it's a census. And according to Oxford Dictionary... A census is an official count or survey of population typically recording various details of individuals. In 3800 BCE, the Babylonian Empire took its first known census. Mm -hmm. They counted livestock, uh, quantities of butter, honey, milk, wool, and vegetables. In 2 CE, China's Han Dynasty recorded the oldest surviving census data, showing a population of 57 million people Whoa. living in 12 million households. Counting that many people at that point was no small feat, I would imagine. That's right. And imagine in 1400, without a written language, the Incas use a system of knots on strings made from llama or alpaca hair to record census data and administer their empire. Wait, wow. That doesn't seem very efficient. I mean, I, I admire their stick to and um, work ethic, but let's say the guy in charge is like, okay, I need to know exactly how many people we have in our civilization, mm -hmm. and then a guy has to go to a room with all these knots and count them. And then he's like, shut up, you made me forget where I was. Now i got to start over again. Right. And imagine, like, if you've got someone, like a specific family in your empire that's like a really heavy breeders. Yeah. You know, you're going to be like, cut it out. Yeah, stop I've it. got knots to knot. My fingers hurt. And then you consider in the U.S., our first census was done on horseback, and it took 18 months. 
So, yeah. In 1871, British officials required their standard list of jobs be used in India's census, which really highlighted some of the cultural differences because uh, census takers were having a really hard time classifying occupations in India, like uh, storytellers. There Mm. weren't a lot of people who held the title of storyteller in Britain. Um, So they were like, that's not a real job. Um, (laughs) Prayer mutterers. They again, what? it didn't fall into the right categories Very for sad. them. Uh, so it was a real issue. The local population was reluctant to participate in this census to begin with because there were rumors going about that the goal of the count was to identify girls to be sent to England to fan Queen Victoria during a heat wave. <laughs> this sounds like a, an old Monty Python sketch. I love it so much. What's your name? Reggie? Occupation? Prayer moderator. <laughs> Don't say anything, Reggie. We'll see you They're going to take you to fan her with fig leaves. That was my prayer moderator. I loved it. So deciding when a settlement becomes a city is a really difficult task. Blessed are the prayer moderators. I'm sorry, that had to come out. It's fine. We know that having a census isn't what qualifies a city to be a city. Mm. Um, so there, there must have been cities before the censuses, sensei. <laughs> so <clears throat> some argue that it's when a, a settlement establishes trade with other settlements that they become cities. Uh, others say that it has something to do with plumbing, uh, which I think is kind of ridiculous because you can still be a city without plumbing. Like, what do you think we'll do after, you know, the robots take over? Um, and then some argue that... That, by the way, is an excellent point. Thank you. Then there are those that argue that cities can't predate agriculture, that you have to have some sort of agriculture in order for a city to grow up around it or sprout up around it, if you will. <laughs> All right. okay. Please don't leave me. All right. Tertius Chandler, for example, compiled... Tertius. <laughs> I bet it was... It's not Tertius. It's Tertius. It was... That sounds like tortillas. I bet he had a rough go of it in seventh grade. T-E-R-T-I-U-S. Tertius. Isn't that how you would say it? I guess. Sure. I mean, I think it's a little rude to just make fun of someone's name. He didn't pick it. Well, I have the, the mind of a, of a seventh grader, so you should have known this. Pope Pooper Pants. That's your relative. Wait, what was the name? Dorcas Pope. Dorcas Pope. <laughs> uh, anyway. This author used a variety of histor- historical sources like uh, plagues, details about natural disasters or wars that decimated uh, both societies um, to provide clues to get to where a population might have been before the census was taking place. I see. Well, that makes sense. So I wanted to find out, like, what are the cities that have been the most populated throughout history? Um, how has that changed through the years? And I found a book called Why the West Rules for Now, The Patterns of History and What They Reveal About the Future. It's a history book by British historian Ian Morris. And that seems to have uh, details that go back as far back as I could find. And then there's Tertius Chandler's compilation of the population of cities 
throughout history, 4,000 years of urban growth, a historical census, which starts tracking at 3100 BCE. That is amazing to me that they can, they can, they can reach back in time that far. Well, Morris's details go back further. It blows my mind. And then I found uh, from John Byrne Murdoch from the Financial Times details back about, about, about to 1500 CE. So according to Morris and the details that he found in historical writings and such, he's determined that, in his opinion, with a population of 1,000, Beidha Jordan is actually the oldest city that he is identifying. How old is it? 7,000 BC. So 9,000 years ago? Yeah. That was right after Atlantis sunk. That's amazing. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's our reference historically. Yeah, well, you know, the Great Flood, 9,000. Well, 9 to 12,000 years ago is what most experts say. So the numbers can change pretty dramatically depending on uh, not the year necessarily, but events and so on and so forth. Um, So going through as each city changes and takes the number one spot would take forever. um, And we don't have that kind of time. So I'm just going to kind of jump around a little bit and show you how um, amazingly interestingly these cities throughout the world will take hold as the number one placeholder as far as population goes. In 6000 BCE, again, according to Ian Morris, with a population of 3000, Kataluhuk, Turkey um, took the number one spot. Uh, not long after that, uh, populations really starting to grow. And this is, again, as society as a whole is really starting to grow up around uh, central spots. Populations are a booming. Now, with a population of 5,000, Uruk, Iraq, is noted as the biggest city in the world. And that's at 4,000 BCE. And they stay there for some time. 3000 BCE, Uruk, Iraq, continuing to stay in the number one slot, but with a population of 45,000. All right. So we're seeing some real movement. Right. And and this is the time when uh, agriculture is really taking hold and domestication of, uh, of beasts. And so it makes sense. That's right. And it's right around this time as well that we start seeing information provided by Chandler, as I mentioned. And this is where we'll start to see some discrepancies, um, differences of opinion as to which city is actually holding the most people. For instance, that same year, 3000 BCE, when Morris is stating Iraq has the the highest population, Chandler is citing Memphis, Egypt at 30,000 people as being the most populous. 30,000. But that does change from Egypt, according to Chandler, to Iraq as well, until 2000 BCE. That's when Morris says Memphis has the highest population, but Chandler now claims it's in Uh, Iraq. Okay. Those two knuckleheads just can't get on the same page (laughs) or or same papyrus, if you will. And it does. It moves like that in in the charts, you might say. Of course, I've spent my entire life looking at music charts. So <laughs> to me, it does look like, uh, ooh, Mariah Carey's taken over again. But uh, in this case, it's Thebes. Moving up two spaces this week, it's Memphis. And now on with the countdown. 1500 BCE. Thebes, Egypt, 75,000, according to Morris. 
And Chandler's pretty much on board. But Memphis, Egypt, thanks very much. Then things start to get a little more varied. Around 1000 BCE, that's when Morris says China's taking over. That's a weird way to say it. <laughs> China is and a little alarming. Moving too. into the top spot. Uh-huh. Qi having 35,000 people. Wow. Then Babylon takes over for a good 500 years or so, according to pretty much everyone. Mm. Alexandria, Egypt pops in. Then around one. The year one. <laughs> you know, I heard that one is the loneliest number you could ever do. Well, two can be as sad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Oh. I'll give you that. I'll say that much for him. Rome dominates. Constantinople, also a really intense population surge at this time as well. And I'm guessing that these early civilizations, the population boom, has to do with the fact that the area is incredibly fertile. Mm-hmm. Uh, crops are, are easily grown. There's it, plenty of game. It's got so much to do with um, what the weather's been like, yeah. how fruitful their crops have been. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Then we're going to pop ahead to more modern times. So population in the year 1500. I'm guessing London. At number one? No, it's Beijing. Oh, okay. That's according to visualcapitalist.com. Yeah, Beijing pretty much across the board. But then once we get to 1900, that's when you see London take the top spot on all the, all the lists. It's yeah. uh, There's no dispute there. And surprisingly, they had very little plumbing, even then. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Just pretty much everything went right in the Thames. Right. That's I don't understand how anyone can think that you need plumbing in order to be a city. That's bananas. Mm. I mean, the Romans had the aqueducts. Of course, and they had a sewer system. Aqueduct! Sitting on a park bench. Um, But really, there was a great period, uh, an extremely long period of time when uh, plumbing fell out of favor, it seems, (laughs) between ancient Rome and, say, London. It's a lot of work, and for what? 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. Just throw it out the window. London uh, was the first city over 5 million people. Uh, New York City, the first over 10 million people. And Tokyo, the first over 20 million people. That's nuts. 20 million people. That is, that's bonkers. That many people in one space. It absolutely is. And Japan, although a beautiful country, isn't that big. No. And as of 2018, the most populated country in the world. For many millennia, it was almost unfathomable that a city could sustain more than a million residents. Uh, But in China alone, there are now over 100 cities with a million people. And uh, so our brains kind of have to readjust Mm. to like what the new normal is and what a new big city looks like. According to Visual Capitalist, they published a report that estimates human geography and what it will look like. They say it will be completely unfamiliar by the turn of the century. Their 20 largest megacities projected for 2100 is really kind of mind-blowing. Okay, this is interesting. Go ahead. They estimate that 13 of the world's largest megacities will be located in Africa. 
The most populated city, they estimate, in 2100 will be Lagos in Nigeria, with an estimated 88.3 million people. Wow. And that's interesting because if we go back 100 years to 1900, there was a prediction by a futurist at the time. We, we had spoken about this in a previous episode, mm. who predicted by the year 2000 that Boston, New York, Philadelphia, in New Jersey, Washington, yeah, every that would that whole area would be one mega city, right? The entire Northeast. It would pretty much just cut Maine off, and we'd still be up here. Like you guys still like potatoes, right? Yeah, we got some. You guys, for you. you want some potatoes? Right. And you're we, awfully bright down there. Yeah, we got taters for you. You need them. Can you keep it down? Already, Lagos has seen explosive growth, and it's growing so fast that no one actually knows how many people live there. Uh, over 2,000 yeah. people emigrate to the city every single day. Number two, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, projected to be the second largest city yeah. with a population of 83 million. Wow. Cities in Tanzania, uh, DRC, and Nigeria are the top three. And then India in number four and five, Sudan, Niger, six and seven. Not a single city in the top 20 is located in the Americas, in China, or in Europe. I did get most of this information from The Guardian, from Wikipedia, uh, from ThoughtCo, and Visual Capitalist. Uh, thank you so much for indulging me in this, uh, what I'm sure was arduous process of me listing numbers, but I think it's so <laughs> crazy interesting um, how it's fluctuated through time and mm. um, the the details about why that would have happened would be really interesting to get into. But I know we don't have that kind of time. So thank you very much. Enjoy your day. The most important thing I think we've learned from, from your segment is where to be buying real estate right now. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. Frederick William I was the king of Prussia during the 18th century. He was so obsessed with tall people that all of his soldiers had to be at least six feet tall. He bought tall children from their parents, kidnapped tall men, and forced them to marry tall women. Sometimes, he stretched people out on a rack to make them taller. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? 
I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout and you will save thanks aura frames for bringing my family a little bit closer hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As curator, I get a 25% discount at the Box of Oddities employee cafeteria, which means I get a discount on eating crap. This is the Box of Oddities. We got an email from David. He said, I'm reaching out after listening to the recent Halloween special with a very interesting example of the box of oddities effect. By the way, I became an avid listener of the podcast after hearing Dan and Lindsay Cummings suggested on Scared to Death. Oh, they're great folk. They are. We love them. I own a sandwich shop, they write, in a small town north of Wichita, Kansas. I was slicing tomatoes this morning in the restaurant, preparing for lunch service, and listening to episode 274, the Halloween special. The story told by Eric about hiking up a mountain in Colorado in 1970 to see the immediate aftermath of a grisly plane crash piqued my interest at first. But when Jethro mentioned that it was the 50th anniversary, the 1st of October, I sat down the tomato I was going to slice and rewound the episode to hear the details again. A high school classmate of mine's uncle had died in a plane crash in Colorado many years ago. And I remember a post on social media that his dad had made earlier this month about hiking back up to the crash site on the 50th anniversary. I looked back at the post and sure enough, this was the same event. I've attached some photos of their hike. 
It adds some depth to Eric's story to see the crash site and the most of the plane wreckage is still sitting there in the trees. Oh, I'm looking at a photo now. It's crazy. Yeah, the wreckage is still there. Just twisted wreckage. The plane was carrying half the Wichita State football team. Over 31 people died that day. That we did not know. We didn't know. He said, before I opened up the pub for lunch, I walked down the street to our local coffee shop. The brother of the classmate I mentioned before works the counter. I told him that I'd just listened to a podcast that mentioned the plane crash that killed his uncle 50 years ago. He told me he had wanted to make that hike as well, but due to physical limitations, was not able to go. Anyway, I feel honored to have experienced a box of oddities effect today, and I thought you might be interested in some more details of the plane crash. Have a wonderful weekend, and if you're ever in the area, stop and enjoy a sandwich on me. We have a wonderful vegetarian garden hoagie. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there. it's uh, Noffy's Sandwich Shop and Pub. Thank you so much, David. So, okay, so this is a weird box of oddities effect from mm-hmm. our perspective because one of the freaks, Eric, in Colorado, told the story about this plane crash and how at the first of the month, just on a whim, the 50th anniversary, he hiked up there, not knowing that there were going to be people there that had hiked up from Wichita that had family members and loved ones who perished in in that crash. So they may have run into each other. Yeah. So weird. And, And then David sends us pictures that the family members had taken up there at the same time that Eric was there. That is just so weird. Yeah. And also, I love a vegetarian garden hoagie. Oh, my God. Tell me about it. little olive oil. (sighs) Salt and pepper. All right. Prepare your pork taint. It's prepared. Uh, Okay. On August 5th, 1930, a group of men were on a ceiling expedition. Like like, Lionel Richie? Not dancing on the ceiling. No, they were out hunting seal. Oh, I much prefer Lionel Richie. The expedition made their way across a rarely exposed ice sheet in the Arctic region along the Norwegian archipelago only to discover a scene that they had thought and and the world thought had been lost to history. Now, this group was called the Bratvog Expedition. They had plans to hunt seals and to conduct a study of the glaciers in the area. So it was a combination hunting trip, science exploration thing. But instead, (gasps) they ended up excavating the frozen, well-preserved remains of the missing S.A. Andre expedition. Oh my gosh, was Nick Cage there? No. Is this... No, it's not, no. Same kind of vibe, though. Nice! This was an expedition that had disappeared over 30 years prior to them discovering it in the 1930s. We have to go back to the late 1800s when this story began. The world at the time was caught up in the uh, Arctic race. There was such a hype on the Arctic Circle getting to the Arctic Circle first. It created a nationalistic fervor that in many ways was like... like the moon race. Exactly what I was going to say. Very much like the uh, space race of the 1960s. It was a matter of pride for a nation to get to the North Pole first. In 1897, a balloon expedition was to be Sweden's opportunity to become the first country to officially explore the North Pole. It was led by a guy named Solomon August Andre. He was a Swedish explorer and engineer, and he was to be accompanied by Nils Strindberg and Newt Frankel. The plan was to pilot a hot air balloon from Norway to either Russia or Canada, passing directly over the North Pole in the process. They never returned, and for decades no one knew what their fate was. 
This is very interesting. I think that because my first thought was that sounds terrible. Um, But then I thought, how amazing would it be to view uncharted lands by way of a hot air balloon? And it's blowing out hot air. So, I mean, it's a little warmer. See, my thought would be, how do you keep that hot air hot? You know, I mean, you've got to keep stoking that fire. Otherwise, it's going to cool down. You would need an exceptionally large amount of fuel to do this. Anyway, once the final camp was rediscovered in 1930, the mystery of what truly happened to these lost explorers began to unravel. Their plan was simple. Their hot air balloon would launch strategically along that stretch of Norwegian archipelago. Up, up and away. And their starting point would only be 650 miles away from the geographic center of the North Pole. This location would put them just a few hours shy of reaching the farthest north point of any previous expedition. Yeah, it's all about that starting point. I don't know how fast hot air balloons go. Depends on how strong the winds are, I would think. Is there any sort of, like, how does it, how is it even propulsed? Well, What's the propulsion? He, he, had, he had some ideas on this. Uh, unfortunately, none of them worked. Okay, so, and you're um, going to tell me what Yeah, happened. well, one of the things was they had drag ropes that they were going to throw over the side to create wind resistance and slow the balloon down when needed to be, be slowed down. Sure. And then to uh, pick up and steer, they put a sail up there. So they thought maybe they could... Oh. It, didn't, uh, it didn't work. I don't like this. Andre believed that he and his crew would reach their desired goal, the North Pole, within 43 hours after launch. The balloon was named the Eagle, launched as planned on July 11, 1897. But as it drifted farther from its launch point, witnesses said that the balloon struck something. The balloon then rapidly ascended a few hundred feet and then descended so far down that the balloon's basket hit the surface of the water. This was right after the launch. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) They were already a good distance away from the shore, and witnesses saw them throw nine bags of sand out oh, geez. Of, the, uh, of the gondola in order for them to gain enough altitude to escape the grasp of the surface water hole. I would have just said, you know, can we turn this around? We're going to start again. Yes. Sorry, mulligan. Do over. Mulligan. Within an hour, they were out of sight of land. Oh, jeez. That was the last people saw of them until the 1930s. Oh, I don't like this at all. Prior to the expedition's successful 1987 launch, Andre had attempted to uh, to go a year earlier. 1896, it was scheduled for a midsummer launch. He was to be accompanied by two men, Niels Eckholm, and uh, he was a meteorologist. And then, of course, Nils Strindberg, who was a physics professor. The launch was scheduled, but it was pushed back a few days because of poor weather. The weather didn't improve. It was pushed back weeks and weeks. Finally, the crew began to, uh, they felt discouraged. And after waiting for uh, about three weeks, they decided to postpone the launch until the next season. However, one of the members... Eckholm did not return for the next launch. He said, I'm out. He was concerned about issues they encountered when attempting this first launch. He decided he'd seen enough and he backed out of the expedition altogether. His concerns were about whether the balloon was capable of retaining enough hydrogen to make the trip. So, okay. So they weren't using hot air. Okay. They were using hydrogen which, well, we all saw how that ended for the Hindenburg. Um, The engineer... Newt Frankel took his place 
So that's how they got that crew. Okay. On May 11th, 1896, many people were already expressing their concerns about the safety and the feasibility, including local and international news circuits. A New York newspaper based out of Albany called the Albany Express even went so far as to point out the apparent disregard of the crew's safety in the cold. And again, this was the first thing I thought of. You're going to take a hot air balloon over the North Pole. That sounds very, very cool and romantic, but that's going to be cold. Yeah, it's pretty exposed to the elements. I mean, as far as I understand hot air balloons, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't just like a little woven basket with a, you know, a fire under a balloon, but... It was pretty much what I pictured. probably wasn't too far from that because Ugh. we're talking about the 1890s. We're not talking about pressurized gondolas that explorers have used in recent years. What kind of clothing did they think they were going to wear where they could just float in the sky above the coldest place in the world? I don't even know if that's true. But, I mean, <laughs> what? I'm guessing... Fur pelts, but I don't know for sure. But Not that's, turnip pelts. That's No, that's okay. something different and, and far worse when it comes to thermal properties. The newspaper said, quote, How the men expect to protect themselves for 15 days from the intense cold which they will encounter in midair in the regions of eternal winter is not even suggested. It does not seem possible that any amount of furs would suffice to sustain life upon the ice where it is at least possible to secure some shelter is extremely difficult as experience has taught in the frail car of a balloon where the men will be constantly exposed to the intense cold of the open air, it must seem impossible. In the final line of this article from January 16th, 1896, the reporter had this grim prediction. It looks as if this expedition will result in the sacrifice of several human lives and nothing more. Well, so, okay, their plan was just to go over, right? They weren't, were they planning on stopping and No, they're just going to fly over, I okay. guess. That's my understanding. I One thing that this has led me to believe is I don't know enough about hot air balloons because I just don't even see how even a little bit this is feasible. Mm. I don't, were they just looking for, I mean, were, was there, were there drugs? I don't know if there were. Um, that may have helped <laughs> after they ended up somewhere on a frozen ice sheet. Three decades after that happened, in August of 1930, the Bratvug sealing expedition came across the coast of White Island. It's a stretch of land on the Norwegian archipelago. Uh, the thought was it'd be a good place to go seal hunting because very few people go there because of the high snow uh, large glacial structures that are hard to maneuver. It has kept previous exploration in this area uh, to a minimum. It's pretty remote. I'm pulling it up on maps right now. So when they arrived, they approached a frozen stream and a glint of something shiny caught their attention. They found that it was a, p a piece of aluminum sticking out from the snow. When they retrieved it, they noticed a dark form just below the ice. As they chipped away the ice and the snow, they slowly began to realize what it was that they were uncovering. It was the boat of Andre. That must be kind of bizarre when you're in a place where you're not expecting to see aluminum popping yeah, up right. out of the snow. And Let you're alone like, oh. A frozen cadaver. According to the New Yorker, they first noticed a canvas boat and in it a boat hook stamped 
Andre's Pole Expedition, 1896. Not far from the boat was a body that was leaning up against a rock. (gasps) The body was frozen, and on its feet were boots partially covered by snow. Very little but bones remained on the torso and the arms, and the head was totally missing. The clothes were scattered about, leading them to conclude that bears probably had disturbed the remains. Oh, disturbed. Sure. He and others carefully opened up the jacket, and when they saw a large monogram of A, they knew that they were looking at S.A. Andre the Swede with uh, his two companions who had ascended in 1897 in a hydrogen balloon and disappeared somewhere over the, uh, over the Arctic Circle. Wow. His body was found with his hunting gun set directly beside him, suggesting that uh, he had not been under any threat. It wasn't like polar bears were attacking him mm-hmm. at this point. And his journal was carefully wrapped and positioned between his back and the rock that they found him leaning against. The suggestion to them was that uh, it was an intentional attempt by Andre to preserve the journal for anyone who might find his body in the future. He knew it was up. The frozen cadavers of the other two crew members, Frankel and Strindberg, uh, were also located just a short distance away. Their bodies were found Uh, with additional journals and belongings, including film canisters. Now, they took these film canisters back with them, and they developed them, and they contained nearly 200 photographs that Strindberg had managed to take throughout their expedition. So the journals and the pictures helped piece together at least part of the story. Yeah. Andre had originally calculated that they would be over the North Pole, Uh, In 43 hours, what we learned was that after 65 hours after the launch, they found themselves stranded on a seemingly endless expanse of ice with a withered and deflated hot air balloon. Well, I mean, if you were going for the North Pole, you're going to continue finding an expansive piece (laughs) of ice. Yeah. It's not like you're going to find a candy cane pole. (laughs) Right. But regardless, they went down 65 hours after launch. Oh. Andre took uh, note of the general details of the uh, journey, including the disposition of the crew, the stocks of food, their approximate geographic positioning. Uh, Frankel's journal was all science. Strindberg's journal was far more personal, emotional, and reflective. One of uh, Andre's first entries, he described that, quote, the snow on the ice is a light, dirty yellow across a great expanse. The fur of the polar bear has the same color. Andre and the other men all recorded the general positivity that they felt during the beginning of this journey. They appeared to have, uh, that, that seemed to sustain them early on. In an entry on July 25th, Strindberg wrote, We have just stopped for a day after drudging and pulling the sledges for 10 hours. I am really rather tired, but must first chat a bit. I am in excellent health, and you need not fear for us at all. We are sure to come home by and by. August 17th, over a month after their launch, Andre expressed one of the biggest signs of worry. Quote, Our journey today has been terrible. We have not advanced more than a thousand meters, but with the greatest difficulty, we've had to dodge from ice flow to ice flow. Oh, that must have been horrifying. Just terrifying. You come to open water and you've got to figure out, okay, now what do we do? Mm. But he still maintained his positivity, describing the landscape in uh, another entry, magnificent Venetian landscapes with canals between lofty hummock edges on both sides, water square with ice fountain and stairs down to the canals, divine. I'm looking at the map right now, and 
I this is terrifying. Like I'm that's the island yeah. that they were oh, on. Wow. They're way out in the middle of nowhere. And even if I mean, even if they got to the edge of the island, they're still on that island. They're still on ice. That's yeah. terrifying. And are they trying to drag the the Yeah, they're the, dragging sledges of supplies with them. <sighs> he admitted our position is not especially good. The snow had begun to fall, and their bodies had begun to ail against the uh, the cold. Andre's final entry, October 8th, 1897. They apparently had got off the ice floe and reached the island. He wrote, It feels fine to be able to sleep here on fast land, as a contrast with the drifting ice out on the ocean where we constantly heard the cracking and the grinding and the din. We shall have to gather driftwood and bones of whales, and we'll have to do some moving around when the weather permits. That was the last thing he wrote. The discovery of Andre's body and eventually those of his uh, fellow crew members <sighs> did provide clues somewhat to their ultimate demise, but uh, doesn't completely put to rest how it all happened. Right. So it seems as though it was like, we're, we're up, up and away in our beautiful balloon. And then all of a sudden it was like, so we're dragging our stuff behind yeah, us. Yeah. There it, was no, uh, we seem to be losing altitude. There was none, none of that. None of that. No. What appeared was that uh, 65 ha- uh, hours into the flight, there were some scientific notations taken, but the first evidence that there was some something wrong 65 hours out there on the ground or actually on an ice flow mm. they're out in the middle of the friggin ocean right. on, on ice sheets with their balloon completely disabled they're hauling their supplies trying to get to an island they ultimately reach that island but nobody knows for sure how they died although it appears as though they lasted about two to three months before oh they, they met their demise. Theories have been presented include everything from lead poisoning from the lead-laced cans of food to botulism, suicide, scurvy. I mean, I mean exposure. And even an onslaught of polar bears. But uh, one of the most popular explanations is that the crew members slowly developed trichinosis from consuming undercooked polar bear meat. Oh. However... That doesn't hold up since the crew members' cadavers displayed no signs of the disease. And remembered, other than it, maybe they were mauled by bears at some point, what remained was pretty well preserved. Right. We can't go back and uh, do any further autopsies because the bodies were cremated shortly after being transported back to Sweden in 1930. Um, so a full autopsy is never, it, it's, it's impossible. It's not an option. So, yes, I think... It, it appears to me you're correct. It was just exposure. Over time, they just became cold and tired and sat down and went to sleep. And that was that. But they knew what was happening. At least yeah. Andre did because he wrapped up his journal and he stuck it behind his back so that people would find it. Oof. Oof. Ooh, that is not a feel-good story. No. no. It's amazing, though. That three decades later, these guys came across the party and were able to bring them back. I think it's amazing that they lasted a couple of months. uh, That's mind-blowing. I just... It would be horrifying to me, number one, to be stranded on on an ice sheet in the ocean 
But back then, when really they didn't have the type of equipment that we have today that would help one survive that type of of duress. Mm. But then you see an island way off in the distance and you're thinking, okay, we just need to get there. And it's taken days and weeks and you seem to be getting closer. And then all of a sudden there's this ice flow that opens up and there are these dark rivers of freezing Arctic ocean that you somehow have to get around to get to where you want to be. And then when you go to bed at night, you're sleeping on these ice flows and you hear it cracking and creaking and you think, I'm going to end up in the water. Yeah. And that's not where I want to be. Thank you. I don't like being cold even a little. I become a little agitated when I have to scrape my windshield off in the winter. I don't like holding the container of concentrated orange juice to put it in a bucket to mix with water. She has an orange juice glove that she wears just for that purpose. That's right. Yeah. Again, technology has advanced greatly since those days. Orange juice glove. So anyway, that's what I have for you. And (sighs) um, we uh, appreciate you guys. Hanging out with us as always. Terribly interesting, sweetheart. Very upsetting. Um, Yes, thank you for hanging out with us and for all the support. We've just received so many amazing messages and packages this last week. It's been really uh, a bit overwhelming. I don't know what's going on if uh, the autumn season makes you people feel especially lovey-dovey, but I (laughs) am enjoying it. Thank you. Yes, and thank you to all of you who support us on Patreon. And again, don't forget, we gave out our home phone number to our Tier 3 supporters. That's if you, right. If you want to join, now's a good time. You can find uh, find the link at our website, theboxofoddities.com, or uh, you can go directly to patreon.com slash boxofoddities. And Sober October is over, so we will be dropping a bonus episode very shortly. Yeah, we plan on recording that tomorrow night as soon as Kat stocks up on Lambic. And we'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The Big Picture Questions and the Most Interesting Research in Science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. 
Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.